Columbus fell down on his knees So weak from sailing on the seas He thought he was in the East Indies But he was lost in America Lost In America Welcome to The Many Futures of Work, a co-production of the Institute for Work in the Economy and the Center for Rural Strategies. I'm Peter Kretikos from the Institute. Our goal for you is to hear fresh perspectives about work from grassroots activists, policymakers, and academics. We cast a wide net to include voices who are not often prominent in public discourse. And we bring new ideas addressing the challenges brought about by rapid changes in how work is structured. Finally, these discussions will integrate the experiences of workers across all regions of the U.S. and, sometimes, other parts of the globe. Today, we're excited to have two guests whose work is critical to a fundamental understanding of the contours and nuances of what is described as the platform economy. As we will make clear today, their work has important consequences in terms of what sort of work is and will be emerging from this economy, who will perform it, and what policymakers will need to do with respect to the regulation of the many forms of platform businesses, and then how people should be able to earn a living. Martin Kenney is a distinguished professor of community and regional development at the University of California, Davis, and a co-director at the Berkeley Roundtable on the international economy. John Zeisman is Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley, and is co-founder and co-director of the Berkeley Roundtable on the International Economy. John's ongoing work covers the implications of platforms and intelligent tools for work, entrepreneurship, and in international competition, and uh, to the economic challenges and opportunities of climate change and the green economy. Uh, gentlemen, let's start uh, with a basic definition of the platform economy and how and in what ways it is a distinct structure that crosses many sectors. Martin, I think you're going to lead off on that. Okay. Uh, so the platform, the idea of the platform economy is that these online platforms, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft increasingly, and, and many others, Uber, Lyft, uh, are reorganizing the way work is done, the way competition uh, occurs in contemporary society. And moreover, the platform has enormous amounts of power over both the users, us, over uh, uh, sellers, right? Sellers on Amazon, creators on YouTube, and of course, organizes as Amazon does warehouses and all sorts of other work activity algorithmically. So our, our conception is that these platforms have become core, uh, core firms, core org organizers of not only the US economy, but the global economy, be it China or Germany or Russia. So that's sort of how we're thinking about it. And then that changes the nature of value creation income generation, and work itself. John, you were going to add to that? In many ways, the mega platforms such as Google, Facebook, and the like are the marketplaces of today. Uh, that's overstating it a bit, but uh, it's an important way of seeing it. 
And consequently, the rules of operation that those platforms have become the operating marketplace rules uh, for a particular economy and uh, the way economies, uh, in fact, uh, interoperate. Uh, therefore, the question of whether they should be regulated or not is not whether a company should be regulated, but whether there should be public or private regulation of the broad uh, marketplace and uh, economy. Uh, that's one point I would emphasize. And as we lead into this, I would uh, also say uh, that the debate about platforms and their emergence has run from a utopian vision that all new things would be possible to a dystopian vision that the world is coming, as we knew it, is coming to an end. Uh, in some ways, the shift from uh, Uber being part of a so-called sharing economy to Uber being uh, viewed as a uh, work-abusive uh, operating system uh, captures uh, some of that uh, tonality. You know, one of the ideas that crossed my mind as I've been reading your work and uh, listening to you talk about it in both private conversations and also at our conference a few years ago, is that in some respects Uber is miscategorized as a, being a transportation company, at least in my mind. It's an information company, and it's an information company that is controls both the marketplace for the seller of the services, in this case transportation services, and the buyer of the services, which are ordinary people who are trying to, you know, find a way of getting from point A to point B. Is that a, is that a mischaracterization? Am I going on the wrong path on that? So I think the nature of a platform is to be an intermediary, to organize one, uh, two sides, right? By uh, people who want to go somewhere and drivers or three sides, advertisers, creators, and viewers, YouTube, etc. So the nature of the platform is as an intermediary, but also in most of these cases, only one or maybe two platforms in a sector will survive. So you automatically have either a monopoly situation or a monopoly and a monopsony or a duopoly and a duopsony, right? Mm -hmm. So for the drivers, they face unless tax, you believe taxis are still in, in the business, but on the platforms, they face a duopsony. The, at the end of the day, though, Ubers or Lyft are not the buyers. They are the controllers of the buyers of your service. So that, as an, they're an inter, information intermediary, but also in many cases, they are either a monopoly or a, a duopoly, Duopsony, and we, you know, now people like Lena Khan and the um, and the FTC are starting to go beyond monopoly and think about monopsony, uh, and I think that's how we have to see these: is that they they intermediate, but they intermediate in a monopoly-like structure to both sides of the market. And so I think if we think about it that way, we start to get a better understanding of the power and the ability to organize. So, so for, in California, uh, for instance, there was a um, an, an emphasis on the rights of Uber drivers uh, and Lyft drivers and others. Was that too singular an approach in terms of how to deal with um 
the kinds of changes that these these companies are bringing about is it too narrow or would should it have should there be a broader um, strategy with respect to the regulation of these businesses and particularly in terms of its relationship with its workers i mean uh, john as a political scientist can probably address this uh, more effectively than i can but I, I think there's sort of the narrow issues that are industry verticals. Uber's an industry vertical. Um, Uber, DoorDash, maybe different industry verticals, food delivery, transportation. There are, then there are the mega platforms like Amazon, which sort of stretches across all of the retail sectors. And so one, one would have to think, I think, both in general terms about uh, um regulating platforms, and then narrow terms, sort of the taxi space, moving people from place to place. That may require a certain type of specific regulation, whereas one thinks about an Amazon or Google, which are sort of, now they are multiple platforms glued together. <coughs> Google is YouTube, G Gmail, Google Maps, etc. So you may need another regulatory uh, apparatus for that. So deciding what the market is becomes very difficult. And, and so I think that there's both the narrow and the broad sort of, that we have to consider at the same time as we're thinking about these, because these platforms, as, as John said, are reorganizing not everything, but large swaths of the economy. And so one can't think general and, spe and specific. I think one has to bring, keep both of those things in mind as we think about regulation. And labor practice is another thing. Algorithmic management such as Amazon warehouses is another area that we need to think about, which may not be the FTC, but might be the Department of Labor. So I, I think we have to, all of our regulatory agencies need to think about what's happening here and what the implications are. Uh, Peter, I would start at a slightly different point in addressing the same question as a compliment to it. In a separate paper on a slightly separate issue that Martin and I did called Unicorns, Cheshire Cats, and the New Logic of Entrepreneurial Finance, uh, we emphasized that for many of these uh, platform-based startups, um, they, in fact, are losing money during large portions of this. Uh, and consequently, their disruption of a sector, let's say the taxi sector by Uber, which has uh, lost money for a very long time, uh, you know, basically comes uh, because th they are funded uh, by the venture capitalists who are gambling uh, on being able to have a dominant extractive position later on. Uh, that has a number of consequences. Uh, the notion was that the unicorns had, uh, for everyone that uh, succeeded, there were a number that failed. The only people smiling in the end were the early investors who got out uh, when the valuations were quite high. But it, importantly, it has real significance for labor. Uh, and the consequence for labor is that the companies are more interested in a rapid expansion of market position than they are in any sustainable strategy in many of these uh, uh, these cases. Uh, and consequently, they aren't interested in investing in workforce development in the way that a longer term um, uh, strategy uh, would uh, imply. 
So there are two consequences out of this uh, heavy venture funding. One is that uh, it's not clear, it is clear that the t information technology that Uber and Lyft represent uh, will reorganize transportation availability. Uh, it is not clear that Uber or Lyft has in any way um, necessarily improved uh, the quality uh, to the consumer long term uh, of that if you were to strip away the loss-making subsidies. Uh, it's not necessarily a, uh, an optimization of economic uh, possibilities. Um, and that leads to a huge range of disruptions in labor and social organization and the like. And secondly, the new firms, um, for the most part, don't invest in uh, their workforces uh, uh, long term and have no interest in them uh, as, uh, or have l less interest in them uh, as employees. Um, so we have to look at how they've uh, been financed and what the consequences of that financing uh, actually um, has been. Does that change when they move from the initial phase of venture finance um when when they issue an IPO and they go public, does that fundamentally change any of these dynamics, or um, does it still proceed in this sort of market domination strategy? Well, the question is, how long can you lose money when yep. if you're setting the prices, you know, and if you if you have to keep raising funds to do that, that's a different. It's a similar issue. I'll pick up an I, example, I think but let me turn. Market to domination is absolutely central to these firms. Uh, be it uh, be it by driving the competitors out of business by lowering costs or by acquiring them, but market domination is is absolutely essential because what you're promising the investors is large capital gains from ongoing profit, and so so when raises capital in the stock market, the early investors get out, but now you have this capital to continue to subsidize your, your, your drive for domination. I mean, Amazon is a great case, losing money or barely making money for years and years and years. And now it is dominant and it can turn out on the cash machine, right? But I think domination is central to, the, to this idea. And so you lose money until you dominate the market and then you can decide to tax or create profits on either side of the um, of the equa of the platform. So these are key. But what's your sense in terms of uh, how these platforms will eventually play out in terms of their effect on main mainstream businesses? Um, this is where I think a lot of our listeners are going to probably want to get a clearer sense of. So to probably what kind of small businesses uh, you're talking about and what they're doing and the resurgence in bookstores is relatively minor but people still do buy physical okay. books and i think amazon now has what 60 percent of the book trade so you know that was taken as you said out of course out of the borders out of uh, the uh, those sorts of chains but also the small businesses uh, had a great deal of difficulty competing. And now with COVID, we've seen sort of another turn of the screw. Having said that, of course, Amazon, Etsy, eBay allow virtual businesses to come into existence. So there's ever more selling through 
through these platforms. However, when you're on a platform, you're at the mercy of the platform. And it's already been well documented that Amazon uh, perceives a, a sector or a, um, a good that uh, is selling well on its platform, and then it introduces an, either an Amazon-branded or an Amazon white-label product that competes directly with that successful business that was created on Amazon. So I think, again, this is, this is more in the monopsony area, right? Because what they're really going after is their own vendors, their own successful vendors. And, and again, this is sort of being investigated and studied both in Europe and in the United States. So, so Main Street is still, I think, going to have a great deal of difficulties. Now, of course, if you can change the business to a very in-person business, then, of course, Main Street has a chance to survive. But take the antique business. Antique stores, they're almost all gone. There's a whole sector that's gone. The sales are now through eBay, Amazon, Etsy, etc., etc. So I think Main Street is still in a crisis. And, of course, COVID increased that. So I wouldn't say that the uh, independent bookstore has made a massive recovery. I think there, are, there has been some recovery as they offer a place and they sell coffee, etc., and become a meeting place rather than just a bookstore. I might refer to a paper that we did with a uh, an ex-student, Daphna Beerson, where we looked at it, as recently published, where we looked at um, all the service sectors uh, in the SIC code, six-digit uh, NAICS codes. And what we found that was that approximately 70% of all the NAICS code services, about 500, 70% of them were being affected by a platform in some way. Directly, Amazon comes in and starts to sell books, or indirectly. Increasingly, people buy an automobile by searching on a website, and then after they use the website, like Blue Book has, a, there's a whole series of them. They actually, the website gives recommend, uh, allows dealers to connect with you to try to sell the car. Now, what's interesting about this is that transaction may be almost entirely over the phone and over the internet, and then you go pick up the car. That changes the nature of inside the dealership. Who's who's making the sale? Is it the person on the you know on the in the lot, or is it the internet uh, um, car salesperson? So that then changes the nature of the dealership itself and the dealership's role in the community. So, so when you th if you think about 70% of all service sector being impacted in some way or another by a platform and a platform being able to extract value from that relationship, right? because the platform is for profit, it changes where, where value flows in the society. Does it flow increasingly to a few places like Silicon Valley or Seattle, the West Coast, where these platforms are headquartered and become a tax on all the other communities in the United States or, in fact, perhaps the world? So I think that that's another question 
one might ask in all of this is the reorganization and then where does the value flow because i think value is one of the critical issues who captures it i have to admit i hadn't really had google maps on my radar when it came to uh, an example of a, of a platform business i mean clearly it is a platform but it's its participation or its, its effects seem to be much less apparent, much more intangible, but real. And and, and I'd like to get a, I'd like you to share a little bit about some of the reasoning and findings that you had in terms of your, your work around Google Maps and how that sort of distinguishes itself in terms of its um, role in the platform economy. So if you think about Google Maps, right, it's how do you find things? And for the most part, you know, we're finding just our friend and we're going to drive it to cross town, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're not on Google Maps, in some sense, you don't exist. And therefore, Google Maps can go to the, to the, um, to the retailer and say, you know, you need to give us content so that you exist. And if somebody's searching for you, we can place an advertisement at the top or sort of in the, uh, in the search, right? Well, that means you have to pay for the advertisement. Now, Yellow Pages already existed. So Yellow Pages did similar thing in, in many respects. But Google Maps is so much more than Yellow Pages, if you think about it. And therefore, it becomes, it allows Google to essentially tax retailers to exist, as Yellow Pages did, right, when, when we were in the phone world. But this is far beyond Yellow Pages because it is on an individual basis. Each search then gets, an adverti gets advertisements placed against it. I have to pay for those advertisements. I'm the local retailer, right? That increment of, of money now goes to the cloud, in essence. So Google Maps has become a platform that is almost as vital as Google Search itself, because we all use Google Maps or perhaps some use Apple Maps. So that I think the thing about platforms is that they insinuate themselves in, all, in almost all of our activities. We're going to buy something, we go to Amazon. Right? We're going to look for something, we go to Google. They've become like, like air almost, but owned by someone who's there to extract value. On the other side, of course, they're creating value for us. They make it easier to buy. They can make it easier to find things, etc. So it isn't as though they aren't providing a service that we want. It's just a service that, we, of course, we also pay, have to pay for. Yeah, I think about all the we. My wife and I like to do. Well, we did before COVID, but we like to do um, a lot of cross cross country travel by by car, um, and constantly are looking for new restaurants or some other place that we'd like to visit. But if you're pressed for time, you got kids in the car or whatever, that sort of reliance on a technology that builds off of Google Maps. I mean, it may be a Yelp, it might be Hotels.com, and so forth, but they all have these proximity aspects to it you know what's close to town what's close to you i'm sure that's building off of either google or some other mapping platform that's similar to that um 
has a, has a real consequence in terms of my purchasing decisions. Um, but it's not one that I'm particularly aware of. I think the perfect technology is the technology you're not aware of. That's just in the background, working, shaping, moving you, nudging you in certain directions. That's the perfect technology. You're not aware of it. You just use it. It's just life. It is remarkable how much, Sorry, I was just simply going to say, it is remarkable to what extent these technologies have over the last really five or six years permeated our lives. And I think the combination of the timing of this with COVID, uh, obviously they facilitated life for many of us during COVID, but they also uh, meant that the, the take up and the adoption of these uh, was certainly accelerated and broadened uh, because they became such crucial uh, instruments. And now as we come out of uh, COVID, uh, there they are. They're sort of, uh, our world is different than what we entered uh, uh, with COVID and it will not be the same uh, going forward. Uh, I think the one other thing I would add is that young my young students in my class are far more um, st uh, structured around their phone and these platforms than I am because I came from another uh, generation. So for me, these are like miracles and wow. For them, they're just like the air. So they are, <laughs> they are, exactly. So is there, um, well, let me ask you this, Do, is it even relevant anymore to be asking questions about um, equity, inclusiveness, you know, what's advantage, what's disadvantage, or are we in a situation now where um, these platforms and the algorithms that they use are untouchable? No, I think it's the reverse, Peter. Okay. Precisely because they've become the air, we regulate uh, air and water. We say that we can't have dirty air and dirty water. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the issue of how we regulate uh, the platforms uh, becomes central. And the conversation has to change. It's no longer just about whether or not you regulate companies and whether governments intervene. Uh, it is rather whether the basic rules of society and economy are set uh, in their entirety by private rule makers or public rule makers. Um, so that I think their pervasiveness um, uh, has changed and forced the conversation uh, all, the, uh, all the more. Uh, consequently, as Martin has said, and I would uh, slightly, uh, we both will need rules about at a sector level because transportation has changed, uh, entertainment has changed, what should be the rules uh, that af affect this, and more generally about the mega platforms that orchestrate uh, uh, many of the games. In the same way, I mean, we all recall, uh, though Martin's students won't even know it existed, uh, that uh, in fact uh, there was a time at which we regulated um, telephones as landlines and we regulated uh, entertainment through the air uh, and then we had to have in the Clinton administration a reorganization of the regulation of these various activities because phones had become mobile, 
and uh, television uh, and entertainment had become uh, cable-driven. I think it's in the same sense that we're seeing a basic reorchestration of the of the uh, the air and water, but also of the piping, if you will, and of the electrical systems uh, that uh, that guide us. And so uh, we need to view it in that very uh, broad way. And I think we have a fairly narrow window because one of the important changes here is the huge swaths of wealth uh, that these core companies have means that they become effective lobbyists uh, across uh, everywhere that permits lobbying, if you will. Uh, uh, and we have to, they're players in the game of setting the rules themselves. Uh, and that implies not just platforms, but the tools that consist of on which platforms rest, in which the two critical ones for me, and Martin, you may want to add, are cloud and AI. Uh, and, uh, you know, how do you regulate cloud? What should you do with data um, where it sits? And how should you go about processing it? What can be done with it? What kind of rules about how data is processed and the like? Yeah. So platform now incorporates uh, yeah. the, this broad range of changes. So, so I think one can ask, what should be a public good here? Uh, air we consider a public good. Uh, water we used to or deregulating and it's a little hard to say. But what of these are public goods? And if they're public goods, who should control them? How should be, they be regulated? There are other solutions. Open source, open source mapping, right? Should the state, for example, legislate that for mapping purposes, everything has to be open source mapping? I'm not saying they should, but these are the kinds of questions because open source mapping would be a public good and the state could be involved. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it is going to go, but I'm saying because these are platforms, because they're created by human beings, there are alternatives and the state can uh, influence which of these alternatives will be chosen. So you have, it could be, uh, could see it just as a public good and therefore needs to be regulated like public utilities were regulated before the sort of Reagan-Clinton revolution or should open source mapping be dominant and the state require for all at least state-related applications open source mapping. So these are the kinds of, I think we need to broaden our perspective about how should we regulate these things how should we think about them both at the narrow vertical level, Uber, DoorDash, et cetera, and then at the mega platform level and not just think about can we tinker with things at the margins? Because I think if we tinker, if we don't think sort of some radical thoughts, we might not be able to find the golden median here because we'll just all be discussing this on the uh, very narrow set of uh, criteria that we use today since the sort of deregulation, uh, neoliberal revolution of, of the uh, of the Reagan-Clinton era. What's especially challenging from a public policy perspective, um, it's challenging for those who sit in legislatures to think in these very broad conceptual framework. And this is not a comment about anybody's intelligence, it's it's frankly a, a comment about their bandwidth in terms of what it is that they're able to to address in a in a discrete period of time. 
and it's it is almost as if they would require a roadmap um so that they would under they would appreciate that okay if we do this in this sector this is how it relates to these three other things in different sectors and and maybe attack matters not necessarily sequentially but at least two or three at a time as opposed to the grand world and i don't see the 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 research that undergirds policy providing that kind of framework just yet maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe you see it i i i would i would i don't know how you would attack that i guess is what i'm wondering about and if if you have some thoughts you'd like to share i would appreciate it so i i think that at the federal level uh there is rethinking through these issues and at the state levels too you're having state governments filing suits etc uh, attorneys general that start to address some of these problems. And it, my, my perception of the United States is a lot of big changes are done, yes, through Congress, but sometimes through the regulatory apparatus. I mean, if you think about uh, the Roosevelt Revolution, I mean, obviously there were congressional, uh, you know, things got through Congress, but also his regulatory commissions, etc. Uh, started to make changes that over a long period were pretty uh, significant. So so I think there's some, and then John will talk more about the EU. But Peter, I want to pick up on what you're saying. I think that uh, there's a change in tonality uh, uh, and, and perspective that's quite dramatic as we've gone from uh, this vision of utopia to dystopia over digital technologies in general and to some extent uh, platforms uh, in uh, particular. Uh, that said, I don't think we've seen, and I like your word, which we may uh, 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 steal from you, which is a roadmap for the, uh, for the platform economy. Uh, what there are is a sequence of responses or reactions. Um, uh, we don't yet have a common position on it. The only common positions we've seen built are to some extent about innovation and about industrial policy more broadly. Um, this roadmap, I think, is what Martin and I uh, and our colleagues have been trying to address. That said, I think it's important to do that, and you uh, may have pushed us uh, to formally uh, try and say that. Uh, because the the uh, there are reactions to the reaction. So, um, gentlemen, thank you very much, um, Martin Kenny, John Zeisman. Thank you very much for for our conversation today. Um, and thank you, Peter. Concludes. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, thank you. Well, that does it for today. Thank you to Joel Cohen, who directs, records, and edits this podcast series. Also, thanks to the Center for Rural Strategies our partner and production underwriter. Finally, I'm indebted to my friend John Langford for performing his song, Lost in America. He is a proud son of Newport, Wales, and he is one of Chicago's hardest working, most generous musicians, as well as a wonderful visual artist. As I said, this series draws from our book, The Many Futures of Work, Rethinking Expectations and Breaking Molds. You may order it through your local independent bookstore, through Temple University Press, 
or, of course, through Amazon. I welcome your comments and thoughts. You can email me at credicos at workineconomy.org. Credicos is spelled C-R-E-T-I-C-O-S. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. I'm in America.